All right, well, I, I, I'm, I'm excited to be back. It's, uh, it's felt like we were gone for way too long uh, over the holiday break and uh, talked a lot about, or thought a lot, prayed a lot about, about what we were actually going to be starting off, kicking off the year with. And we spent a lot of time in the Old Testament last year. If, if no one remembers, we, we spent a really, really good chunk of time in the Old Testament. Uh, and so I thought it would be good to get to start off the year getting back into the New Testament. Uh, and honestly, I am too chicken to uh, tackle one of the Gospels uh, at this point in time. It's, uh, eventually, eventually, I'll have the courage to take on one of the Gospels, and we'll spend two years in it. But uh, today is not that day. So, so thinking, about, yeah, think, thinking about what's going on in the world right now and, and what this class is really called to be, I want you to remember what we're doing here. I mean, we... We show up for good food, we show up for fellowship, that's all great, um, but, but in this class in particular, uh, we study the Bible in a very deep way together. Uh, we want to be strengthened by the Word, we want to develop spiritual fathers uh, in this class that can go and be good leaders in the church, and you may sit there and think about yourself right now and not feel like that applies to you, you may feel like you're not far enough along on your spiritual journey for that, but but if you're in this class, you're spending some good time in the Word, and I, and I think God's going to prepare you to do something to, to lead His church. And so, so I, I want to make sure you guys realize that. And, and so I picked this book of the Bible, First Peter, one, because there's some fantastic application of what it means to be spiritual fathers. I mean, the very, this, this book was written, if you go to the end of this book, if you go to chapter 5, you see Peter talking to the audience, and he says this. He goes, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I love the call to leadership that is at the end of First Peter. And sometimes you have to start at the end of a book to kind of understand what the major theme is. Remember, these letters that Paul or Peter would write were not meant to be read over a long period of time. They were meant to be read in one sitting. So if you read this in one sitting, you get to the end, and you kind of see they're, they're calling for leadership. And they're calling for leadership in a pretty interesting time. You know, this is probably uh, late 50s, early 60s AD or so, uh, which would have been before the church started going through the persecution of Nero, the Roman Emperor Nero, uh, but very, very soon before that. And the church is going through persecution, it's just not physical at this point. It's very much social persecution, it's, it's ostracism, it's, it's, it's people trying to live a life in Christ, and it looks radically different from all those who are around them, and people start to push back on them. Uh, they start to get, you know, not, not invited to the, uh, the business meetings, not jobs start disappearing. The, the, the people who used to be friends, they don't feel like they can be friends anymore. There's some skepticism of anyone who isn't upholding all the standards of Roman citizenship. Right? And we have facts outside the Bible to show us that these things were happening. So these people aren't worried at this point in time about being killed, but they're worried about how do they fit into this world when no one's acting like them and they're being called to act in a way that is actively getting pushed against. And so if I think about what's going on in our world today, 
I want to make sure we're preparing ourselves to lead in the midst of a similar level of uncertainty. So we are in the middle, or we, we are in the middle, of probably the most divisive presidential election cycle we have ever experienced. And regardless of what side of the aisle you're on, or even if you've refused to even be on the side of the aisle because you're so fed up with all of it, regardless of where you are, it's going to be divisive. And we, we, have, we have people in this room who have broad views on all those different things. We have Democrats in this room. Believe it or not, we have Democrats in this room, right? We have Republicans in this room. We have independents in this room. And we, we have a libertarian in this room. You know, we have all kinds of people with different political viewpoints. But we're not called to be just parts of political parties during this process. We're called to be children of God who live a life in Christ above everything else. So what I want us to really focus on is, is how do we go and live that life in times like these that we experience today? Because there's some very um, common similarities between some of the social pressures we're going to be experiencing today and what these guys were experiencing whenever Peter wrote to them uh, as members of the early church during that social persecution. So I want you to kind of understand that context as to why uh, we're going to study this, this book. We're going to probably spend about two months uh, going through First Peter. If I get really excited, we might go a little bit longer, but uh, mapping it out, it looks like it'll probably be about two months. And I'd encourage you to do what we did whenever we went through Philippians. Um, it, it's a similar size book. Try to read the book each week. Try to read the whole thing. It's about 10 to 12 minutes to read from start to end. See what God does with you personally uh, as you really work through this. So, two questions that come to my mind whenever I read through 1 Peter. First question is this, who are we going to follow? And the second question is, how are we going to lead? Who are we going to follow is kind of the first question that I ask myself. And, and I say that because I know how tempting it is in this world, especially today, to be following someone who really isn't following Christ. We, we all look for our own saviors, and they may be political officials, they may be family members, they may be friends, uh, they may be our favorite media journalist. Uh, you know, we all look for those, those figures to follow. And what I really want to make sure we look at here today is we're going to follow Christ, right? We are going to follow Christ uh, in this class, and, and Peter's going to help us understand how. And then, in, very importantly, as we get into the lessons after this week, he's going to help us understand how to lead, how to do that, how to think, how to behave, uh, how to act in a way that is worthy uh, of our calling. But I want you to kind of keep those two questions in mind, and I want you to be prepared to be challenged, uh, everyone right now, you, you've, you've had certain level of thoughts that have been ingrained in you for a long time. And I used to have this guy I worked with back in the oil and gas industry, and he was a good mentor of mine. And I remember that um, he cautioned me once. I had been, I'd been working on some project in the field, and there was this guy who had been in the field for 40 years doing a job. And w- whatever that guy said, I did, because he had been out there for 40 years. And my mentor cautioned me. He said, 40 years of experience doesn't mean it was 40 years of good experience. Uh, sometimes our experiences and our, and our thoughts and, our, and things we've been involved in can actually shape us in the wrong way. So that's where I want to start today. I want you to talk at your tables for just a couple of minutes about something about God that you've been wrong about. 
as maybe something you learned early on that, that you thought was true, and then as you learned something else, you were wrong. And I'll give you an example for me. The first thing I think about whenever I think about this is I used to think that the God of the Old Testament was a very different God than the God of the New Testament. Uh, and, and that was based on the fact that most of my understanding of the Bible came from some Sunday school classes back in Kentucky whenever I was a kid, and I hadn't really picked up the book to read it uh, since then, right? And so I, I thought that God of the Old Testament was a very different God than the God of the New Testament. Turns out I was completely wrong. I want you to think about that for a little bit. What's something that you've once thought about God that turned out to be wrong as you studied more? So talk about that, and we'll come back. Well, did, did we find anyone in the room who has always had a perfect knowledge of the, the majestic, mysterious God of the universe? Anyone, anyone just completely know this from, from, you know, beginning as a child on, no, no clarifications needed whatsoever? No, none of us. Any, any thoughts, any, any good example you guys came up with of something you once thought that, that was wrong, turned out to be wrong? Yeah, well, unfortunately for you, in your case, that might be true, but, but it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, you got, you got a lot of people, a lot of people still today, there's probably people walking in our church who think that if I do good, God will be good to me. If I do bad, God will be bad to me. Is that true? Absolutely not. That, you, you think down that process, that's going to lead you down to worship a God who is not our God, right? Absolutely not our God. Any other thoughts? Any other examples come up? Yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the biggest examples um, that always comes up is, um, you know, um, a, a good God, you know, can't allow anything bad to happen, so there must be just something crazy going on in the universe. And, and so I, the reason I asked you guys this question is I wanted to prove something to you, which is at one point in time in your life, you've been wrong, right? As have I. And, and I want us to be willing to be wrong, right? I want us to be willing to be wrong because if we're not willing to be wrong about anything, that's pride getting in the way. And God will humble us in one way or another. We can either participate in the process or he'll do it for us. But, but we need to be humble enough to know that we might just not know everything, right? We might just not know everything. I know I listened to this research study uh, on the radio the other day, and actually, I don't know, this may have been a So We Speak podcast. It sounds like a So We Speak podcast. So uh, where they're talking about people with opinions. And the study pretty much found out that the most opinionated people normally were the people who, who were the least informed. And as you became more and more informed, you became less opinionated. And it wasn't because because you were more informed, you happened to be a nicer person or anything like that or morally better or anything like that. It was that as you learned more, you started learning just how much you don't know. And as you learn more, you go, well, I get a bit less opinionated because I know there's this whole spectrum of information out there. I just don't know. So you kind of ratchet down your opinion, your opinions just a little bit. The more and more I personally learn about God, the more I realize about this universe, I just don't know. And luckily, he has given us everything he feels like we need to know right here to worship him and to live a life according to his ways and to, to have joy in the life that we lead in Christ. But it's going to come from here. I want us to be willing to 
wipe away some of what we think we know about how we need to engage in this world, especially during times like this, and be willing to say, God, we're going to trust in your guidance. And so whenever I teach First Peter throughout these next couple of months, I'm not going to teach from the perspective of me trying to get the Bible to fit into my Republican talking points. I'm not going to try to get the Bible to fit into a Democratic talking point. I want to teach the Bible through what God wants to say, and let's all adjust to whatever it is God is telling us. Does that kind of make sense? I want us to get that view down as we engage here in the Word. So, that being said, 1 Peter has all kinds of application in it, but we're not going to talk about any application at all today, because Peter does something pretty interesting to start out this letter. Peter, Peter gives a whole lot of context, and he's got some very specific context he wants to get out before he gets into the therefores or the now-go-do's. He wants the, the, the readers, the people in the early church, this would, have been, this would have been people out in the early church in kind of modern-day Turkey, uh, churches that have probably been founded at some point in time on Paul's missionary journeys and, and, and others. He wants the people of the early church to know one main truth before he gets into the application. Context is always very, very important, and I think context is, is incredibly important, especially when you're getting ready to tell someone to go do something they may not want to do. Uh, the, for some reason in this class, every time I think about a way to explain things, I normally go down to stories about my dad, uh, and it just so happens he has to sit back there and deal with this. So um, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about, about context, and the story that came to my mind was me as a child. I was seven years old, and my dad thought that that was a good time for me to start mowing the yard. You know, a good seven-year-old's time to start mowing the yard. Well, I remember we had this, we had this push lawnmower, and this would have been back in the early 90s. I'm dating myself just a little bit, but back in the early 90s. And we had one of the very kind of, it was an old lawnmower whenever I took it over when I was seven. Uh, but we had the original design of the lawnmower. It was like the very f- first push or like self-propelled lawnmower that had been made and so it was really heavy made of steel just I mean this thing was heavy Uh, and unfortunately the self-propelled feature did not work uh, at the age of seven whenever I started mowing so and I couldn't reach the lawnmower normally whenever you mow the lawn you kind of you know have your hands going down well I was seven so my hands were up here as I was mowing the yard and we grew up in Kentucky, and so we had thick Kentucky fescue. And so for me, mowing the yard was not the most joyful experience as a seven-year-old. I remember one day, I must have been complaining uh, about mowing the yard. And I can't believe, you can't believe I'd ever complain about doing a chore, right? I mean, that's, that never happened. Uh, I must have been complaining. I remember my dad sat me down, and he, he worked out the math. He goes, look, you mow our yard, and you mow our neighbor's yard. And our neighbor's yard, they're an elderly couple that I would mow the yard for. They paid me $11 a week to mow their yard. And he worked out the math, and he goes, you know, you make like $5.65 an hour. You know that's more than minimum wage, and you're seven. You're making more than minimum wage. And so he was trying to give me this great context of, of why I should be appreciative of the fact that I was getting to mow the yard at the age of seven. And I remember thinking about the fact every time I was mowing the yard that maybe it's not worth it. Uh, it's probably not worth it. Uh, but he was trying to give me context as I was about to go out and do something uh, that I wanted to do. And, and that being said, I did eventually start liking mowing the yard. Uh, especially as my bodily strength allowed me to do it a bit less uh, aggressively. And I remember one day I was sitting there mowing the yard, and Dad was sitting on the front porch, and he goes, Hey, Blake, Blake. And I shut off the lawnmower, and he goes, I just want you to remember this. 
one day you too can sit on your front porch and watch your son mow the yard. (laughs) My son turned eight this year, so I am looking forward to that happening. Uh, So anyway, we want to get into the context. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 uh, here. This is the introduction of Peter's letter uh, to the early church. And I want you to listen for what context Peter is trying to give to the early church uh, in this introduction. So bear with me as I kind of read through this text. Uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion. And when he says the dispersion, that's a Jewish term going back to when the Jews got dispersed throughout uh, after they were kind of taken over by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Um, But Peter's actually writing here to both Jewish audiences and Gentiles who had come together to kind of form the early church. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. So he's getting the whole trinity out of the way right here in the introduction. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, these things into which angels long to look. I want you to talk at your tables for just a second. As you heard that, what context did you hear? What, what truth was Peter really trying to nail into these guys' heads before he starts telling them what they now need to go do? Talk about that for just a couple minutes. What did you hear? All right, so any, any thoughts on this? Anyone have anything they wanted to share? What, what did you hear coming out of this? What, what context or what, what truth was Peter trying to get across? How good we got it. That's a, a good way to think about it. We'll, we'll elaborate on that in a minute. Any other thoughts? How good we got it is probably not a bad way to describe it. It's kind of like you know, you're getting paid a little bit more than minimum wage at the age of seven to mow the yard, right? That's not too bad. You got it pretty well. Uh, he is. He's, he's trying to make sure he sets their expectations and, and, and helps them understand where in time, where in this overall unrolling of the cosmic events that are to come, that have been in the past, that are to come in the future, where they are in time and why they should just be incredibly grateful for where they are in time because they're getting to take part in something that the angels are longing to look at, right? They're, they're getting to play this part. And to explain this better, and we really need to make sure we understand this before we go on, because if we go on and we just talk about how we ought to live a life, 
you can learn that from anywhere. You can get that in a TED Talk. You can get that from a self-help book. You can do all that. But you've got to understand this fundamental truth first before we go on. And I apologize. I'm not criticizing TED Talks or self-help books. They can be very useful for certain things, not all things. Uh, so we, we want to understand what this truth actually is. Now, well, the way I want to explain it, what came to my mind as I was going through this was a teaching of Jesus. And so if you remember, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he had gone, he'd gotten baptized, he'd gone out into the wilderness for 40 days, uh, and then he'd come back, and he, and, and he came into his hometown of Nazareth. And so he went into the synagogue, and they handed him a scroll to read, which would have been a normal custom of the time. And, and whenever someone, at that time, whoever was handed a scroll to read, that was really a sign of respect. You know, they didn't just let anyone do that. Uh, it's kind of like asking, like thinking about Marty asking someone to come up and read the word of God uh, to the entire congregation. Uh, Marty's not going to let you guys do that. So anyway, so they hand Jesus this scroll to read. And remember, at this point in time, no one's seen the miracles. No one's seen all these different things that occurred. You know, the, the people in Nazareth grew up with this guy. So he comes in, and he is handed the scroll from the prophet Isaiah. And this is something we've talked about a little bit before, but I want to dive into it. And so at the bottom of your, of your work page or your notes, you see Isaiah chapter 61. And this is the scroll that Jesus got handed. And he said this. He's, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now this passage goes on, but Jesus stops here right at this comma. And that's why I titled this lesson today, Living in the Comma. And I want you to see this. Jesus stopped right at that comma. Now, probably didn't have a comma in the Hebrew, but he stops right there and he rolls back up the scroll and he hands it to the attendant and he says, today this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today it's been fulfilled in your hearing. And people knew what he was saying, right? People knew exactly what he was saying. This was well known to be a messianic prophecy, People knew what he was claiming, and how do we know what he was claiming? How do we know that they knew what he was claiming? What did the people do? They wanted to throw him off the cliff, right? They tried to throw him off the cliff. And I've stood on the top of that cliff, and it would not be a fun fall. You would hit a lot of rocks uh, on the way down. So they tried to kill him for what he said right there. And, of course, he gets away, or else you know the whole Bible would be slightly different. Uh, he gets away. Now... Yeah, they, they part. So to proclaim, now what I wanted to focus on is something very specific he says here. That last line before he rolls up the scroll and hands it back to the attendant, he says this, I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, whenever I read this a long time ago, I saw that line and it just puzzled me. So I started researching it. And whenever he says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, what the people would have heard at that point in time, they would have hearkened back to something that happened back in Leviticus called the year of Jubilee. I wanted to tell you what this year of Jubilee is. I'm going to read Leviticus chapter 8, a few verses here, and just listen to this and I'll explain it. Think about Leviticus, so, so laws coming down to Moses, Moses teaching to the people, right? And this is a law that came from God. It says, you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that at the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. So 
make sure I understand that. Every seven years at the time, the people were supposed to let the ground rest, right? So think about, far- we got a lot of farmers in the room. Think about every seven years, you got to let the entire field go fallow, right? And, the, and it allows the ground to rest. Kind of think about Jesus or, or God resting on the Sabbath, on, on the seventh day. You want to let the ground rest. What they're saying is after seven of those seven years, so in the 50th year, this thing, call, thing happened called, is called the year of Jubilee. So it says, then on that year, you shall sound loud the trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In the year of jubilee, each of you shall return to your property. And then down in verse 17 it says this, You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. This year of jubilee is a very fascinating thing to me. And I actually think it was, I mean, this was a command of God, but it is a command that only happened once every 50 years. And as you guys recall from all of our study of the Old Testament, the people had a hard time going 50 years of obedience at a time, right? It wasn't like these guys were perfect angels all throughout the Old Testament. Some scholars believe that this year Jubilee was actually never once practiced. Uh, and, but this was a command of God. On that 50th year, you will have the year of Jubilee. And I want you to think about what happens in the year of Jubilee because Jesus, whenever he rolls up that scroll of Isaiah, he's, he's getting them to think back to this concept of what they've learned in school about the year of Jubilee. And so think about what it symbolizes. You know, for the year of Jubilee, you're not allowed to work the ground the year before. You're not allowed to work the ground during the year. You've got to have complete faith in God that he's going to provide for you during that time, that somehow the fields will produce, that somehow it will work. You're not allowed to sow and reap uh, during that time. You also, though, you see that people are being provided for without unnecessary toil. Uh, You see that people are free from their debts. In that year, all debts are forgiven. I mean, what a radical concept in a society. All economic debts are forgiven. People, if you remember, whenever they went into the promised land, they were allotted certain lands by clan. And they're saying, if you've sold any of that land or if if you've sold yourself into slavery, whatever it is, come back home. Right? Come back home and your land of your family, of your clan, is going to be restored. You have that option. Uh, the year of Jubilee, if you really think about it, is probably the closest thing that we can imagine that is like a reversion to the Garden of Eden. So, so we were expelled from the Garden of Eden, but think about what happened in the Garden of Eden. We didn't, we didn't have to toil the way we toil now to make the ground produce food. We, we didn't have to be afraid. We were not in any debt. We were communing with God. We were trusting on his daily provision in, in a way that it's even hard for us to understand right now. This year, Jubilee was the closest thing we can imagine to that. All debts are off. You're coming home. You're being provided for. You're, you're enjoying that time with God. It's a very, very radical concept, right? But this was a command of God. And so Jesus is pretty much saying, 
He's saying, I have come to bring in the year of Jubilee, not just in this, not in a literal way, in that we're going to have one year of this awesome peace and where your debts are forgiven. He's saying, I'm bringing this in in a cosmic way. I am the Messiah that will bring in a cosmic year of Jubilee. You are enslaved to your sin. You have debts. They will be forgiven. You have been expelled from the area of God. You've been expelled from God's provision. I am bringing you back home. You are living in a world of chaos, and I am bringing you back to order. Right? He's, he's ushering in something that is magnificent and, and just incredible, something that angels long to look because the angels see that the one creature that was created in the image of God is being redeemed and brought back to God in a joyful celebration. Jesus is saying, this is the time that you're living in. You notice that in the, the, if you look at your note page, that prophecy of Isaiah keeps going, Right? The next, the next sentence in that prophecy of Isaiah that Jesus had in the scroll says this, in the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. The day of vengeance is also going to come, and Jesus will fulfill that prophecy as well. The day of judgment will come, but he stops before he gets to that. He stops at the comma because that day has not yet come. Yet the day where he is bringing this cosmic jubilee has come. Right? It has come. It starts, we're living in this time of it is finished, if that makes sense. And, and we're living in between the time of it is finished and before that final judgment comes. What a beautiful time that is. And I know that we deal with suffering in this world right now. We do, all of us do. I mean, you heard the prayer request right before we started class. We all deal with suffering because we're in this world, right? We're in a fallen world. We're just not of it. Jesus is making a big radical claim that he's ushered in something that is beautiful. And Peter is wanting to make sure that he makes that point very clear before he moves on. You kind of look at what he says and he goes, Remember those prophets we learned about in the Old Testament? Those prophets who died for the word of God, who spoke truth to power, who were persecuted by their own people over and over again? Think about the prophet Jeremiah and all that he endured just individually. Those prophets were being faithful for a time that wasn't even theirs. That time is yours, right? If you think about the people who face all the obstacles, the peoples who were staring in the face of the Assyrians, the people who died in the wake of the Assyrians and died in the wake of the Babylonians, the people who had to be exiled and brought back, who've dealt with so much strife all that time. They looked forward to a time that the Messiah would come, and that time is yours. Right? He's wanting them to make sure they realize this is your time where God has provided this incredible blessing. Are you going to suffer? Yes. You're going to suffer. That's going to refine your faith, though, and it's going to make it an even more glorious celebration when you're united in Christ because your salvation is being held in, in, in hold in heaven, right? It's just a great, great understanding of what God is telling us here in, this, in, the, in his word. And I just want us to, to see that we're going to learn a lot in this series, but this is the context that we must understand. 
We are just like those people who have been exiled from Eden who have a debt that could not be paid on our own. And it took someone else, someone who is perfect, to say that debt has been forgiven. You can come home. You can come back into the garden. If we read through what happens at the very end of the Bible, it is just like everything has been restored to the order of what God has has desired, the joyful celebration that we get to have in our lives. So my question to us is this, as is, is we kind of wrap up this lesson. Do we believe what I just said, which is what Peter said, which is what the Holy Spirit inspired from Peter, do we believe that is true? Do we believe this entire lesson is true? And I, have to, I want to make sure we actually think about that. Do we really believe it, that, that we get to live in this time that the angels are longing to look, right? Do we believe that is true? Because in the midst of suffering, when we're going through suffering, grief, fear, pain, whatever it may be, it's very easy to believe that that is not true. But it is the truth. And if we do believe it, we've got to trust not only that, but then what's going to come next? What we're going to get into next week when Peter says, because that is true, now live this way. But we first have to know, is this true? I I love the God that we get to worship. I love that this was his plan. And I love the fact that for some reason, I got to be born into the time of the comma, right? I got to be born in this beautiful window when God has, has made a way before judgment comes. We get to be beautiful benefactors of that great truth. So keep that in your head this week. Make sure you really let that sink in because I think if you do let that sink in, you're going to be more motivated to be obedient to what comes next. Make sense? All right. Let me pray for you and we can get out of here. Ten minutes early today. Look at that. Father, I, I, I thank you so much for these men. I thank you for the word. I thank you that the word became flesh and that the word came and died for us. I thank you that we do not have to, to come at a time where, you had, where, where we don't get to enjoy this great gift that you have freely given. We were not perfect, we are not perfect, yet you died for us anyway. May that truth really sink into us. May the Holy Spirit be with us and guide us, convict us. We don't want to be obedient to you because we want to be better people. We don't want to be obedient just because uh, that's what our friends tell us to do. We don't want to be obedient to you because that's what a politician tells us to do. We want to be obedient to you because you have shown us so much love. Thank you for coming. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for the joy we get to experience in you. May you watch over each man in this class. May we be the leaders that you need us to be in your church for your purposes in your kingdom. Amen.